Hello, this is Abhilash Jaykumar, co-founder and managing director of Tres Vista. On today's Tres Vista talk, I'm joined by Andy Lee, founder and CIO of Parallaxis Capital. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for taking the time. Before we start talking about Parallaxis, if we can maybe take a step back and talk about your journey, how you got to Parallaxis. You started in 2017, um, not so far into your career. Can you can you maybe give me some background of where you started? So I'm from Champaign, Illinois, um, so in the middle of nowhere, a little country bumpkin. Um, I had the co- option to go to college a little early. And when I graduated, at which point in time, my dad said, I'm not signing your lease in New York City. You need to go get your PhD. I didn't really want to do that. Um, unfortunately, because I couldn't sign a lease in New York, I had to do a graduate degree. I did a graduate degree in taxation. And you'll ask, why so specific? Um, it was primarily because it had two attributes that I prized, frankly. One, no course of participation. So you didn't need to show up to school. And two, an open book exam at the end of the year. For someone who was really lazy, that was an absolute godsend. Post that, I started an MA at City. And there, a, my old boss basically said, Don't you have a master's in taxation? You're going to work in this assignment. And basically got staffed on a project. Um, on a buyback of a TRA between Cloud Peak, a coal producer, and Real Tinto, the global commodity producer. And so I thought to myself, this is super interesting. Someone should provide third-party liquidity for it. Fast forward, I went to a private equity firm called Lone Star Funds. There, I was basically told the only way that you get promoted here is for you to create something. And so there were a number of endeavors that we sought to pursue the one that really got off the ground was in monetizing tax receivable agreements. And so six years ago, some of the partners said, this is too small of an opportunity set, but why don't you go do it? We'll give you some money to go do it. And so I left. We've raised four funds over the last five years, and it's been a journey. So I want to go back to something you said and, and make you reconcile it and explain it to me. How does someone who gets a PhD see themselves as lazy? Uh, I did not get a PhD. I got a, a, a master's in taxation. Um, but I would say it's a little bit of monkey see, monkey do. My sister also graduated relatively early. She's actually way smarter than I am. And so it's one of those things where if you see a older sibling of yours pursue something, you just naturally want to follow in their footsteps. Literally, I know that she was doing something that was unusual for me. That was just natural. And my parents were obviously wanting to gain lever- uh, economies of scale and drop us off with all the same SAT club prep classes, among others. So they got some leverage in that regard on us. And getting well, us out of the home, most importantly. As <laughs> well. You know, it's interesting because what you're talking about is ultimately the sources of motivation, right? And I think a lot of people, when they hear the word lazy, they think of people who are unmotivated. Right? But people have different forms of motivation. And clearly, you're highly motivated, but your motivation is a little bit different. So what is your motivation? What motivated you along the way and post-college? What motivated you? I think it's a function of bringing your own reality into this world. And so each of us, yourself included, you had a vision of what Trace Vista was going to be longer term for me. And then what I do today, like tax is likely the largest asset class that no one's ever heard of. I mean, the two things that are inevitable in life are one, death, and two, taxes. I had a wedding over the weekend and uh, in Morocco, and there was a public garden a bunch of us went to during some downtime. And when you enter the garden, everyone's walking to the left, and it's like a lap that you go through the garden. And there was nobody really standing off to the right, but a lot of people going to the left. So my first reaction was, I'll go to the right because nobody's there. And one of my friends, uh, 
you know, said, everyone's going to the left. You know, it's inductive reasoning. We should go to the left. And I thought that was an interesting uh, perspective he had because my perspective was the exact opposite, right? If everyone's doing something, then what is it? It's not automatic. That's what I should be doing. Now, you started the conversation. You saw your sister doing something. You modeled after that. But later in your career, you were looking at what people aren't doing. What has that been like trying to do things people don't do? How do you lean into that? How do you preserve your own sanity when everyone around you might be saying, why are you doing what you're doing? It makes I think no it's sense. so much easier. If I wanted to compete in leverage buyouts, which is what I historically did when I was at Lone Star Funds, it would be incredibly difficult to differentiate myself as an Asian American um, in what is a relatively competitive space. I would be competing, competing against the blue chips who might have gone to a Harvard, Stanford, Penn, who had worked at Goldman and subsequently moved on to a KKR, the best and the brightest. Like doing what I do today, and when you pave your own path, like you are your own competition. Like where you can go as a firm, like you are your own limiting factor in so many regards. Yes, it is challenging in some ways, but it's so much easier in others. But raising something that was relatively esoteric, like what I do today, um, was actually way easier because there was no preconceived notion of what Parallax, um, a team that monetizes tax assets should look like versus a traditional private equity firm where you would need to have two decades of private equity under your belt, uh, several operating partners and a large team to bring to bear value added strategies. There was no notion of that for what I do. So your motivation to be lazy in some ways is strategic, right? How do you minimize the effort you have to do to maximize the output, which when you think about investing is always what you're trying to do, isn't it? Asymmetry. Uh, I mean, like think about one of the biggest areas of asymmetry is the cold email. Like you have almost unlimited upside as to what could come from a cold email and minimal downside. Most of the time you just end up in spam, which is get deleted. Very few people um, are willing to spend the effort or time to invest in just writing cold emails. And that's something that almost from a get-go, like when I was a kid, I did that. And so it's been a great source of competitive advantage over time in terms of building and compounding network, that network. You know, prior to starting your own business and now being into it seven years, what's the biggest thing you learned that you wouldn't have anticipated in building a business? Sales. Almost something that I didn't fully appreciate, especially in private equity, is there's such, at the junior levels, you prize the ability to process, you prize the ability to to build, glean judgment. But if you think about what private equity really is, there are four avenues of value add that we bring to bear. And that's one, sourcing, two, selection, three, value add or asset management, and four, your exit. And each of which, if you think about it, it really is sales really comes to the fore of it, even though at the senior levels, while not priced at the junior levels. A, you got to sell a management team on partnering with you above all else. You have to convince them to change things that they've not done historically. Might that be embracing digital enhancements? or changing their business model from uh, to the likes of recurring revenue versus discretionary sales to ultimately convincing a seller, uh, a buyer, 
that you guys are the platform of choice and why they should pay up for you yeah. above all else. And so, so much of that is just sales in, in and of itself. Um, and that was not something that I thought a lot about growing up, like where you prize the technical skill sets. Like when you go into banking, you're told that you should learn, you should get into M&A. Um, little do people know that M&A is the worst paid group um, at the senior levels. It's not the rainmaking group. It's just a processing group. Well, I always tell people, if you get senior enough in whatever it is you're doing, you're going to become a sales professional. And if you're not doing sales, you're not senior. Right? 100%. And that's not something that they teach you growing up. Yeah. Well, nobody grows up and says, when I grow up, I want to sell what astronauts 100%. do. <laughs> right. But it's definitely, the you know, it's it's something senior people do because it's hard. Right. When you I mean, think you, your point about even for astronauts, they have to instill confidence in the selection committee that they are going to be able to do their mission and above all that even at the cost of their own life, they will complete the mission. Like, yeah, the first sale most people make is selling themselves, whether it's selling themselves to a university or the company to hire them. A challenge for most people. Their wives. What was that? Their wives. Yeah, that's the biggest sale, right? And or kids. You got to teach your kids to eat vegetables. <laughs> that's a difficult sale. That they cannot sell. You'll have to, if you figure out how to get a kid to eat vegetables, please let me know. For most people, when they sell something, they sell it sporadically. So you don't get a job every Tuesday. So you prepare, prepare, and you sell it once, and then you don't do it again. So it's not a skill one develops, right? But when you think about developing skills, a lot of people say things like, oh, they were a natural board salesperson, right? And maybe some people are, but others aren't. But like any skill, it can be developed. So how did you develop this skill over the last seven years? So you learned it was necessary. So what did you do? How did you, how would you approach it? differently now if you could give yourself advice so i think i took it it was a really painful transformation just to be very clear um and to our conversation prior to this call like it has been growing pains as i might describe it in the initially you start off as an individual contributor over time you become a manager and then you become a leader and visionary. Each of these are different skill sets, especially from a sales perspective. Like from a team manager perspective, you've had to, among others, sell people on why they need to do something for a client that might they might not want to do and why it would be beneficial to them and their careers longer term. Like you subsequent to that, you then had to sell clients on why you were the partner of choice relative to some of your other competitors and why you were gonna do a better job and how you were gonna deliver for them an outcome that was incredibly beneficial to them. Those were different levels of sales. If you ask me, like six years ago, when we started Fund One, I did almost 800 LP conversations to end up with 16 investors. So a 2% yield. And that was trial by fire, whereby you got to pitch and own your, your sales and marketing endeavors um understanding how to qualify people do you that you have capital do you allocate to an emerging manager are you willing to move out on the risk spectrum as it pertains to a new asset class that has not been touched before all of those forced me to learn how to prospect to generate leads and ultimately close on people and i as painful as that journey was to our conversation it was what was necessary to get us to where we are today and i'm forever thankful for some of the difficult conversations that we had that were incredibly uncomfortable in that moment. But now as a result, we've been refined and I can deliver 
a message that is significantly more concise um, and a lot more with a lot more confidence than where we were seven years ago. You know, you had the good fortune, maybe didn't feel like it in the moment of starting this process early in your journey, where a lot of people, depending on the company they're at, the industry in, might not be in a sales role till they're 40, right? You can very easily, you know, be an accountant and be on the delivery side in an audit firm and not have to sell anything until you make partner. And all of a sudden, you're in a role that you've never done before and it can be daunting. Now, learning something new in your 20s, often people are much more open to getting, you know, uh, their rear end handed to them, right? For lack of a better world, because you're in that learning mindset still. But as your career goes on, the gaps between feeling like an intern get longer and longer. At this stage of your career, obviously, there's still tons of stuff to learn and grow from. But how do you lean into it now? Right. And how do you approach it mentally versus how you might have approached learning and development you know, seven years ago? Absolutely. And so to be clear, like we try to focus on making everyone uncomfortable. And I always tell my team, if you're comfortable, you're not growing. There are only two zones um, in that regard. And so like even to this day, I probably send one to five cold emails a week um, to people that I just want to meet. Might that be on the business development side? or just interesting individuals that I would like to find avenues to connect with. And so that's brought us into places. The yield, if you're willing to write a relatively custom email, is actually relatively high. And so that has served me incredibly well. And so while am I comfortable doing it now after doing it for, call it seven years? Yes. Um, but there are other avenues, might that be public speaking, <clears throat> an avenue like this, where we're sharing our story, is not something that comes second nature. And so finding avenues like this to push myself onto the frontier um, has helped us grow um, our capabilities, but also our reach over time versus doing one-to-one discussions. You know, there's that old adage, a great salesperson can sell ice cream to an Eskimo. And I've always said a better salesman will sell them a jacket, right? Now, at the core of sales is still having a great product or service, right? Can you maybe take this moment to talk a little bit about what Parallaxis is doing for its clients. Yeah, absolutely. So we seek to deliver our clients, which are endowments and foundations, a uncorrelated return that is cash yielding in nature and serves as a call option on corporate tax rates. And so those are aspects that some view to be almost a holy grail in nature and a truly uncorrelated return agnostic of uh, markets is incredibly valuable in the context of large portfolios. And so that's what, at least what we seek to deliver. And some of the aspects as it pertains to the product itself, like we play within a small segment of the larger tax market. And so in that regards, many of the items that and technologies that we bring to bear today are avenues for us to potentially express ourselves in similar formats in the future. Um, but life is about crawl, walk, run before we're ever willing to endeavor and to explore new avenues within tax. We need to master our current domain. And we've done that by utilizing resources such as Vista. Like your team has been incredibly helpful in helping us build out our knowledge of our asset class by undertaking underwritings of almost every single name in our universe, have helping us start from the 80-yard line whenever a transaction comes to the four versus the one-yard line. We're not starting and learning what a business does. We're starting with a relatively curated understanding 
of what are the items that we care the most about prior to us engaging in earnest with a seller. So you know and your are part of our competitive advantage longer term, and for which I'm very thankful for you and your team. This idea of competitive advantage, when you're starting a business, you look for that white space. Where are the fewest players, right? But if, And so for us, we said, okay, outsourcing, we didn't invent outsourcing, but can we do something for a different target market that is otherwise getting ignored? So we focused on high value at outsourcing for the buy side and boutique advisory firms. And if you do something well and you do it long enough, well, it's going to invite competition, right? And, and so how do you think about preserving your position as the industry leader in this niche space as the space gets a little less niche? And what timeline do you think it will become less niche and invite more competition? Absolutely. And competition is inevitable. It's a when, not an if, in my mind, generally. And so like we talk a lot about why we have first mover today. It's really a first to scale game whereby you have so much in the way of competitive advantage that is not impossible to overcome, just incredibly expensive to overcome. So some of the aspects that we've brought to bear is that we've spent the last five years building a repository of credit underwritings for every single name of our portfolio with the help of your team. And that's something that all members of our team are constantly being kept aware on a weekly basis, whereby we share with them each of the underlying credits and such that everyone understands whenever a deal is coming, that what are the major risks that we want to have addressed in our final diligence? And two, that everyone's not asking, what is ophthalmology? Like, that's something that has been addressed over the last five years as to how we think about that risk. Do we, are we constructive on that risk? And how do we, what are the items that we want to focus on on a go forward basis? So we're starting from the 80 yard line, not the one yard line. So that would be what I would describe as our first advantage. I mean, our second advantage is that we've sought to build whole whole positions across the universe, whereby we are effectively owning a portion of the overall asset. And to the extent that we like the exposure, we incrementally seek to originate. And it's so much easier to build a um, build exposure in a name after you already have exposure to it, um, both internally and externally. Um, but that just takes time. And I think there are a number of items, but the final piece is cost of capital. We have been constantly seeking to drive down our cost of capital in different formats. One, by killing risk. The more risk we can kill across the opportunity set for our investors um, and stakeholders writ large, the more value we effectively create. Um, and by seeking avenues to return capital. And so the more capital we can put in the pockets of our investors, the more they're willing to give to us over time. And so that's done by achieving things such as a securitization. We are in the process of getting a credit rating. And so might that be perceived risk or actual risk, we have sought to address them over time in a different, a number of different formats. So given the current uh, macroeconomic backdrop that we're operating in, you know, actually look back over the seven-year history of Paralexis, you've operated in many completely distinct backdrops, right? How has the, the experience of going through these transformative times shaped how you build your business? And how do you view the current backdrop for what your opportunity is? And, and what's your crystal ball and where we go from here? So to be clear, 
I will answer in two formats. One, at the asset level as to what we buy and how it performs. And B, um, as at the management company as um, or the business that I run, Parallaxis Capital. And so from an assets perspective, what we seek to deliver to our investors is an uncorrelated return. To the extent that we didn't deliver that value proposition over the last seven years, then we're basically out of business. And so as a blessing and a curse, 2020 um, was effectively one of the worst times for us where everyone was up and to the right. We're in an uncorrelated asset class. In that regards, like we clip a healthy return but we're not generating two times in a year, unlike some of the growth equity strategies that had a phenomenal run during COVID. But correspondingly, in a downturn like what we're seeing today, that would that we are delivering on that value prop, um, delivering that same uncorrelated return while there has been a downdraft in the overall market. And so, from an asset perspective, we've done what we set we set out to do. Um, from an asset, uh, from a business perspective, Parallaxis Capital, that's been more challenging. Obviously, it's incredibly hard to address concerns as everyone sees their colleagues or people they did banking and private equity with, with getting really rich during COVID. But correspondingly, they're not fearing for their jobs on the way down, like where we are today. And that's been incredibly helpful. And as you build a team, they gain tenure. Um, as you build trust, that's been incredibly helpful in managing, making sure that no one gets too high on the way up and no one gets too down on the way down, that we are constantly executing on what we seek to deliver, not only for our investors, but also for our stakeholders like our employees in time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, these times uh, of layoffs and instability in a lot of companies, prior to the financial crisis, it happened every three to seven years, like clockwork, right? And so, you know, it wasn't as jarring as it is to people as it is now. And because now 15 years, you go without a downturn, you've got a lot of people like yourself who are in real positions of leadership who've never had to go through these situations before, right? I remember I was an analyst in banking, in tech banking in 01, right? We negotiated clauses in our leases that if I get laid off, I can terminate my lease because that was a reality, right? And so when you know that, then you value your position very differently. You don't get so greedy that someone made money, right? Because you see what you have, which is stability, it's risk return, right? Again, you can get really rich buying lottery tickets, right? But the risk profile usually isn't worth it. I'm with you. Oh, fantastic. And any, any parting words of uh, wisdom or uh, sage advice for potential investors? I think it goes back to our conversation on sales. Selling is the most valuable skill set. You'll have to sell your future wife. You'll have to sell your kids on eating vegetables. You have to sell investors as to why you're going to be a steward of their capital and earn for them healthy returns. You have to sell your employees as to why you are a good steward of them and their careers and their families. Um, there are everything in life is sales. Um, and so there are some elements whereby people say, is it product or is it sales? And I think there is a healthy debate to be had in that regard. But for most in the private capital space, being able to have a, in a leader that is able to sell his stakeholders as to where they're going and execute upon that plan is incredibly valuable. And that requires you to have refine and own that skill over time. And if you look at the leadership across any mega fund, 
they're basically just sales personnel and they've mastered it at the highest levels. And so if you ever aspire for that seat, you just got to start doing it in small formats, selling your VP or um, management team on doing things that are constructive to their endeavors um, and convincing them of your position. And so everything starts in a crawl, walk, run fashion, start crawling as quickly as possible. I think, you know, you said selling to employees where they're going. And I think that's an important thing a lot of people miss. They, it's easier to sell today. Selling the future is much harder because it's a vision. And that's the harder sale, right? But it's the thing that matters a lot more. Often, you know, people, they like buying, they hate being sold to. But the things that matter the most are things they often don't think exist or that they need, right? And that makes it harder. So when you move into a white space, it's easier because you don't have the competition. It's harder because you have to explain to people why there's a white space. Absolutely. Well, very exciting. Well, it's been our privilege to be your partners in this growth story, and we're very excited to continue to be your partner as you continue growing. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Andy. You're welcome.